the idea that Antonio planted in my head, which is that pasta waits for no one. Meaning, when you sit down for dinner or lunch and your pasta arrives before the person on either side of you, you just eat it. You don't wait. Um, there's something so pure and joyous about kind of appreciating that first bite and not waiting. And it's a mindset. And, and I feel that that sort of permeates that city and that landscape. You really can't not feel in the moment when you're in Positano. It's just an inconceivably beautiful, magical place. I don't know if it's one thing, but it's a total thing, and it feels like a fairy tale. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. Positano Bites Deep wrote John Steinbeck in 1953 for Harper's Bazaar. It is a dream place that isn't quite real when you are there and becomes beckoningly real after you've gone. When the famed writer visited the town on Italy's Amalfi Coast, it was still a somewhat isolated and unknown gem about an hour away from Naples. Built into the steep cliffside, the former fishing village today has become something of an Instagram post come to life. While the town is known as a hotspot for the wealthy and connected, Rudolf Nureyev famously owned an island villa there for decades. Along with the inevitable tourists, its relative remoteness and geography has kept it as unspoiled feeling today as it has for decades. This summer, I had a chance to visit for the first time, and while the Grand Tourist has seen a thing or two, Steinbeck was right. It's a living dream. At the heart of any dream vacation to Positano comes a singular hotel that Steinbeck mentions in his piece, one that I was able to stay in for three glorious nights. La Serenusa. A relatively small hotel by urban standards and built on a cliff like pretty much everything in Positano, the building is a series of small, elegant discoveries. A mesmerizing piece of artwork here, a perfectly upholstered chair there. It's traditional without being stuffy and dynamic enough without being overrun. Opened in 1951 by four siblings, the hotel is still run today by the same family, the Sorsales. Antonio Sorsale runs the hotel, while his wife Carla runs Emporio Serenusa, a lifestyle brand based on the property. Before my trip, I wanted to speak with Antonio about how his family came to run this incredible gem, how Positano came to be so fabulous, and how he keeps it all going in such a tricky locale. I also speak with a fan and collaborator with La Serenusa, Alex Israel, the LA-based artist who shows with Gagosian in New York, created one of the many site-specific installations at La Serenusa. And stick around to the very end to hear the delicate sounds of a two-guitar serenade from one of my late nights at the hotel's incredible restaurant, La Sponda. I connected with Antonio from his office at the hotel. Well, I guess I wanted to start, you know, speaking um, a little bit more generally. And can you tell me what your your very earliest memories are of, of Positano? Well, my earliest memories, I'm around um, six or seven, and I'm, uh, I'm coming to Positano with my father, who was bringing me here at the time. And I have this, these very strong memories of this wonderful smell of the, the, the sea, um, some plants that grow rosemary, and this beautiful light, um, this, the sun reflecting itself on the sea, which makes this golden light. I've got these very strong memories. They're sort of fractured with, with sort of vignettes. And each one, I've got this, these rooms with, um, the idea of the curtains, um, sort of being pushed, um, by the wind, uh, um, because at the time we didn't really use air conditioning that much. And of this village where the beach was omnipresent. And I would basically spend the majority of my day on the beach playing with other children often playing football. So I have this very naive memory of Positano as a as just this place of filled with joy. And if you met somebody, you know, in a faraway land, right? And let's say you were visiting China and you were at a party and, and someone said, I've never heard of Positano. What is it? And, and what is it like there? If they had no clue, what, what, how would you describe it? Well, I would definitely describe it as a, as a charming, very quaint fishing village, um, which is nestled on these very high mountains, which are incredibly beautiful. So the, the backdrop is, you know, blue sea, um, steep mountains, 
and this village sort of being embraced by it all. And um, the charm of Positano, that it's more of a vertical village rather than horizontal. So you're either walking up steps or down steps. And everything is, um, is, is these houses basically one on top of the other. I would, I would also talk about, um, of course, the location and the location being, you know, at the heart of the Amalfi Coast makes it a great place to, um, to be because everything is just a stone's throw away. You can go to Capri by boat. You can go to, um, you can go to Sorrento. You can go to Pompeii, to Mount Vesuvius. So there's a lot, um, around which makes it a very sort of culturally interesting destination as well. You know, I was I, I heard that back in the past in your uh, in your life that there in your family that there was a, a cardinal in your in your family's past that almost became pope. That that shows some very deep Italian roots. Can you tell me a little bit about you know your family's history with with Positano? Well, we had you know my family is is traditionally from Naples, and um, in the 17th century we had this cardinal called Antonino Sersale. And um, he was, um, um, he never made it to anything more than cardinal to the great sort of um, sadness of the family because, you know, had he, had he made Pope or something like that, our family would have been a much more important one. But anyway, he was a cardinal and we have a beautiful painting of his um, done by Carlo Amalfi that's in our hotel. And he seemed a very severe man, but there was a branch of the family that was slightly more severe. Um, Yes. So that is um, in regards to um, the Cardinal. The family basically lived in Naples and um, on my father's side, of course. And in Positano lived a distant uncle who was living in sin and was sort of a bit looked upon um, in a rather negative way because he was living with a divorced woman. And um, so the family didn't really come to Positano much, to this um, house that was a family house that he was inhabiting until basically um, World War II, where my grandfather was actually in a tram car in Naples, a bomb fell near it, and some of the people in the tram car were tragically killed. He lost two fingers of his right arm, and um, of his right hand, sorry, and he moved the family immediately to Positano to avoid the bombings. So the family spent the duration of the war in Positano. What was the town like during, you know, in the early 40s, right? When when they said we're going to go to Positano, it wasn't like we're going on vacation. It was it was like we're going to a remote village that no one will care about and we're going to hide there from from, you know, from the war. Exactly. So the first thing that you have to consider is that the road was very bad. So the road you had to come by carriage or by car and you know, I mean, but there were very few cars at the time. Um so um in this area um and so it was it was just a very arduous trip to come here. And um then there was no running water as such. There were wells. And um, so you had to go and get the water from the wells or send it for someone, of course, to, to get it for you. So it was a bit very Spartan. And so, you know, the families not really come here much. Um, there was they had this little house with orchards all around. And um, and then they so the village was, I would say, a rather simple village and mostly living upon fishing and um, and farming. Farming, I mean, mostly um, lemons, olives and some fruits and uh and so how did they you know after when the war ended how did that start to shift from them you know creating a hotel and and how did that kind of happen well what happened was that during the war um positano was also par- partially a rest camp for um a british regiment so some of the british soldiers as they were pushing up the germans came from time to time to rest here um, um, and so after the war, um, they returned and, um, that was sort of the beginning of tourism in Positano. And also, um, what happened was that, you know, some of the sort of the foreigners traveling through Italy would come to Positano because the name was already getting out a little bit, you know, mostly though, I would say the first tourists were really these soldiers that began coming back with family members and their wives or, right. 
So my family, my family had this little house and they had sort of friends coming to visit them. Naples was devastated because Naples was heavily bombed during the war. And so I think at a certain moment in 1951, they just decided, well, if you have all these people staying, we might as well turn our house into a hotel. And so they opened it with just a few rooms and then they bought the house nearby. And then slowly over the years, they built it up a little bit. Hmm. And, you know, John. Steinbeck visited the town, uh, you know, a little bit time, a little bit later than that, uh, when it first opened. And, you know, he made a point of saying how, you know, remote and difficult it was and how, you know, nice ladies may not, you know, can't exactly wear their linen there or, or you know, uh, how would you describe those sort of stories that you may have heard of those sort of like early transformational years of, of Positano, how it kind of you know, who were the first really impactful tourists that you think after the soldiers kind of left, you know, that kind of turned it into, started to turn it into what it is today? Well, I would say on the one hand, you had the Italians because this, a lot of Italians had, um, especially Neapolitans, had um, summer houses in Positano. So a lot of the Neapolitans were coming to Positano all the time, um, and that sort of created a base. And then you had foreigners, and because the village was very small, and when foreigners came, they were basically englobed in this sort of Neapolitan society. And, and what sort of, you know, what, how would you describe uh, that sort of Neapolitan spirit there that maybe you don't get in a small coastal village, let's say, you know, somewhere else in Italy, like up in the north? How does that sort of, how can, a, a, if, a, if an Italian person has never been to the coast and they walked in and then they would realize that they were in that sort of, in this region? And well, sort of the first thing you have to see that, um, um, <laughs> it's, it's sort of a funny anecdote, but, um, you know, um, the women of the area were very, very religious. And therefore, if a man wanted to sort of have any, sort of, um, uh, you know, a distraction. Um, it was very difficult to have it with the Neapolitan um, um, women and, and, and the local girls because, you know, I mean, you mm. had to basically get married. Instead with the <laughs> foreigners, you know, the, these foreigners were sometimes coming and looking for adventure. So this intermingling, and in fact, a lot of Positanese actually married foreigners because, you know, these were the first women that um, seemed uh. free to them. And, and that cross-pollination actually began to open the mind of these people to the world um, so that, you know, you began to have Positanese that were traveling to then see their wives' families. And, and so it, it also um, opened the minds of the locals, um, making them sort of very worldly. So, you know, you had Positanese mm. that were traveling, um, women that were and men too that were coming here on holiday and so there was um a big um artist began coming here and so they they found this as a as a wonderful sort of place because it was very free away from the conventions that you would find maybe in the more conservative cities you see what i mean you've got mm. to always remember that Itali italy was a very religious country so it was mm. rather you know it was very conservative in its cities and who were some of those first artists that came to the to Positano? In the well, we had, of course, Nureyev that um, mm -hmm. had um, owned the islands in front. Um, then we had just down the coast in Ravello, um, Gore Vidal had this beautiful house and, and lived in Ravello. Then we had this incredibly sort of talented um, movie maker, um, scenographer, I would say, called Franco Zeffirelli. And with them, all of Hollywood came and sort of British actors would come, British musicians. You, um, uh, Pink Floyd came here. The Rolling Stones passed by. I mean, it was like part of the grand tour. At a certain moment, Picasso came by. Picasso spent a lot of time in um, Naples. He was highly sort of, um, and then he came to Pompeii. He was highly sort of influenced by these wonderful Roman ruins. Andy Warhol spent time in Naples and did um, a series of Vesuvio paintings. So there's always been a tradition, both on the literary side and on the visual side and on the musical side, for people to sort of 
come to this area of beauty to look for inspiration. Before we return to Antonio, a word from our sponsor, Janice AC. In the world of design, an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janice AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for more than 40 years, the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create work by some of the world's best designers and architects, from Andre Fu and Gabolini Shepard to Piero Lissoni. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janice AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. This season, Janice AC is proud to partner with sister company and premier Italian furniture brand, Poltrona Frau, welcoming their first outdoor collection to the United States. Poltrona Frau's boundless living collection is vibrant and sophisticated, transforming any space into an Italian playground. The collection includes spacious modular sofas with woven backs, poolside sunbeds with striped fabric pulled right from the cliffs of Positano. And my personal favorite, the Solaria high-back chairs, made from a handmade rope weave that casts playful shadows which become part of any design scheme. But the line goes way beyond seating to include portable lanterns, coffee tables, and a stunning slender-legged dining table made from teak with a surface covered in geometric glazed ceramic elements. Janice AC is the exclusive distributor of Poltrona Frau's Boundless Living Collection in the United States and Mexico. To create your very own Positano garden, make an appointment at your local Janice AC showroom or visit JaniceAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E.com. So Steinbeck mentions in his famous piece about Positano that La Serenusa was a spotless hotel even back then. Where did your family get this knack for hospitality? So two things. My family, one was um, very hospitable. And then they loved and respected very much the local architecture. So you've got to think, this is an area that was highly influenced by the Moors. So the Moors would raid this area up to basically two Two centuries ago, this area was raided by the Moors. So, of course, this created an intermixing, again, of cultures. So here the architecture is very much sort of whitewashed walls with vaulted ceilings and tiled floors. Tiled floors is a tradition of the area because they were always made in, in, um, in Vietri, just down the coast. So these tiled floors would create this sense of cool indoor but also fun playfulness. So my family basically put together these concepts that were prevalent in the area from a decorative point of view. So you create this sort of, and also bringing some refinement because my family always had a passion for furniture and for, um, for art. So it's, it's, it's a family that's always been very much in charge, in, in touch with the aesthetics. Then my uncle, my father's oldest brother, had this ability to bring on people to collaborate with him that were incredibly warm. I remember him telling me that he would interview people, and if they had experience in the industry, he was not interested. If instead they were like a simple fisherman or they were someone that had no experience, he would take them on because what he felt was more important is to give a sense of welcome, a sense of warmth, to really make everyone that comes feel that they are special more than the efficiency of the actual service. And and so why the name uh, Serenusa? Is that because of the islands? Can you explain like where Abs- why they decided that name? Absolutely, because this house looked out directly to these islands in front of it. And these islands were called the islands of in mythology of the sirens, Sirenuse. So that's where the name came from. And these islands are also called Ligali, correct? Yes, but that's a much later name. Ah, okay. okay. And where did that name later on, where did that name come from? In terms so of that later they, on, say, they say that <laughs> the name comes from the profile. If you look at the islands from a certain profile, it is as though two cockerels are fighting each other. Ah, okay. <laughs> and so from I that, I believe the name came to the islands of Ligalli. So actually, can you just tell me a little bit today, you know, describing uh, the hotel as it is now? Like, you know, uh, if you're speaking to someone in the industry, just purely as a hotel, right? Like how many rooms and, 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 and 
if you could describe uh, Serenusa as it is, you know, as we speak? Well, the first thing about the Serenusa, which is what everyone notices and everyone loves, is that although we now have 58 rooms, it maintains very much the feeling of a private house and the charm and warmth of the private house. Um, one of the things that's very interesting about the Sirenuse is something that it took me a lot of time to realize is that it doesn't really make sense in many areas. I.e., if you go to a hotel nowadays that is designed by an architect, um, he tells you very clearly what each area needs to be. I.e., this is where you eat. This is where you sit down. This is where you swim. At the Sirenuse, this is very confused because this is a house that was adapted into a hotel, not a hotel that was born as a hotel. So it has certain quirks. It's got rooms that follow on to each other that are just decorated um, as seating areas. And you can decide if you want to just sit, look at a painting, or just walk through it. You know, it has various terraces. So it's this series of terraces cascading towards the sea with rooms overlooking the ocean. And then on one terrace, we have the swimming pool, we have a dining room, and then we have this wonderful outdoor seating, which is um, the, um, the outdoor dining. We also have on another terrace, quite funny, which used to be our parking lot, a bar in honor of my late father, Franco, called Franco's Bar, which is highly loved by everyone. And there's always a bit of a line to get into it. And that's street level. And then there is sort of, so it's, you can imagine just these terraces with these rooms behind them on different levels, working its way down towards on eight levels, the sea. Mm -hmm. And, uh, was there ever a, a, a opportunities to expand beyond that? But it sounds like probably no, because it's, you know, everything on the cliffs, they're probably, it sort of sounds impervious to true expansion, right? Or growth for the city, right? It's not, uh, it's not a flat city that can kind of grow. No. Like you can't, you know, it's, it sounds like it's a verily, uh, a lot of restrictions when you're on a cliff um, in terms of like what you can do and how you can expand. Yeah, and also you've got to think we've got a property, another hotel on our on our left. We've got a, a a friend's house on our right, and then another house below us, and then behind us we have the road. So actually, we are completely landlocked. Mm. There's also kind of a creative spirit to the hotel. Um, you know, uh, there's the Emporio brand. There's the sort of uh, the Dolce Wellness. There's Frankel's Bar. It's very, um, you know. Obviously, the hotel could just be the hotel if it wanted to. Why? What, where does all this sort of activity come from? Now that we've spoken, I've, I'm wondering: is it because it's sort of restrained and can't uh, <laughs> it can't maybe grow in a traditional way in terms of size or other locations necessarily? Um, so you kind of have to get more more creative in terms of like how you expand uh, in a in a in a sort of, I don't even know what, what way to describe it in a more, in a brand sense, right. With, with a lot of, um, activity, where, where did that, that first kind of, um, spirit come from? Well, I think there's two things. One, there's a tremendous passion and the passion is, you know, to, um, to follow your dreams. And so I, for example, always loved reading. So at a certain moment I was speaking to this friend of mine, Nancy Novogrod, and we started a writing school here and the writing school is called siren land and now we're on our 15th year and so every oh, year wow. for one week the hotel gets turned into a writing school you know many years ago i went to um, um a, a boot camp in um in the u.s and that was an inspiration for me together with some other places that i'd seen to start dolce vitality so i think the interesting thing is um to use the hotel as a platform. There's a very funny thing that happened when my father moved here about um, 35 years ago. Um, he decided, well, because he was a great traveler, I'm going to start, go around the world, fire all the things that I love, and then open a, a shop and sell them. Um, and he was also in charge of the decor of the hotel. He had an incredible eye and was an incredible tastemaker and very refined. And so he would buy these incredibly refined sort of silk jackets um, sort of in China and then travel sort of the Far East and, 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 and hmm. around the world. And he opened this shop. And um, 
actually for a man that doesn't really have experience in fashion, it's very difficult. So he, he was having tremendous problems <laughs> selling these incredible items that he bought. So when my, I moved here with my wife, the first thing he said to Carla, Carla, the first thing you have to do now is make sure that you look after the shop because <laughs> I simply have no idea how to do it. And then, for example, I always had a passion for bars and um, and, um, and and I once went for with Carla to Paris. We hung out at um, the Hotel Coste and I thought, wow, if this place can do a romantic bar in Paris, how can I not have one in um, Positano? And so that's how Aldo's Bar was born in honor of my um, late uncle, who was one of the founders, who was the founder of the hotel. And, um, and so, you know, it's just one thing that led to the next, but it's also following sort of your passions and your dreams in a way and finding a way to realize them within a hotel. Oh, amazing. That's what, that's such a nice story. <laughs> it's, and obviously she, she clearly knows the, she knows the family and obviously knows the brand very well and is doing super well. Um, Tell me a little. So I, I'm visiting for the first time uh, in uh, in June, uh, right right before this comes out. So I'll be able to sort of add some some of my own experience, hopefully, to this. Tell me, like, if you were to suggest to somebody what the sort of perfect amount of time to spend there, or you know, what would that a sort of mini itinerary look like for someone visiting? Um, in the for the first time? Well, I would say definitely around between um, our average stay is 3.5, but I would say like four days um, because a lot of people, you know, some people stay four, some people stay three. You know, people usually tag it into a trip, to a cultural trip or uh, in Italy, and then this is the R&R, the rest and relaxation part. But what I love here is, um, our, is the boating. Um, I really love the idea that the hotel has a boat that goes out every day along the coast and it takes you to restaurants along the coast. Because one of the nicest things is you walk down to the beach, you hop on a boat and this boat takes you along the coast. You stop for a swim and then you you arrive to a wonderful beach restaurant. So that's really one of my favorite things to do. You can also take a boat and go to Capri for the day or you can take a ferry and go to Capri. Now, Depending on the season, if it's a bit cooler, it's still lovely to sightsee. So you can take, for example, a car and go and see Pompeii, which is amazing. And then you could be very sort of sort of cultivated, cultivated person. And you might want to go and see some of the museums in Naples and spend a day in Naples. That you can still do because from here to Naples, it's an hour and 15 minutes. Or you can just decide to flop by the pool and spend the day gazing at the village and then in the afternoon go out. So for a little walk, I love, for example, in the afternoon to go for walks in the mountains because there are these beautiful paths that you can do and, um, and you can do that. Or you can join, um, we have this charming man who takes you for um, walks in the morning and you can go for a walk in the morning up the steps and then have lunch um, somewhere along the coast and then as relax on the pool in the afternoon. And when it comes to all these restaurants uh, along the coast, you know, what sort of local food is, you know, the area known for in terms of like fish or, you know, what is that sort of local cuisine like? Well, the cuisine, I must tell you, and I, I have been living here, is really delicious. First of all, because it's very simple, uncomplicated, and is based on certain ingredients, which are basically fish, and vegetables. This is an area which is, has amazing vegetables, which are very seasonal, and also the fruit. So, for example, with a season of tomato, you literally go mad because you get these large um, salad tomatoes, which are absolutely delicious. Um, the lemons are very good. And so if you have, for example, a fish with some freshly squeezed lemon on it and some very good olive oil, you've, you're in heaven. Um, the salads are very good. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot to eat without requiring tremendous complication, which is what makes it so delicious. And these restaurants along the coast are really the masters of this. And yeah, I have heard about the lemons there and that they kind of like grow to a sort of a natural size. Is that sort of like, is that still true? Is that, yes. is that an you get You get some which are called chedri, which grow very large. But the, the lemons grow basically to the size of a, of a large fist and, um, and are really, I mean, just a fragrance. For example, I love in the evening to have a gin tonic. And you have a gin tonic with a lemon rind inside of it. And it's like an explosion of, 
of, of flavors. It's just so delicious. And what are some of the, the fish that are sort of caught locally? Well, you have amazing octopus, of course. Mm. Um, you have sea bass. You have swordfish. And um, you have um, anchovies. Um, and you have a rockfish, which is very good. And, um, and, and, and then some other crazy names like Pezzogna. Um, you have, um, a San Pietro, which is, um, I can't remember the English name for it now. Um, anyway, um, there's, there's just uh, all these, these Mediterranean fishes with impossible <laughs> names. <laughs> What is your favorite? If you had to, uh, you know, if you had your choice of, of you know, whatever meal you would have. I love um, this fish, which is called cocho. The cocho is a very ugly looking fish. It's like an annoyed fish with a big head. And it's, I think it's called a rock fish. It's a bright red with some brown dots on it. And they cook it in what they call this crazy water, which is a, a combination of, um, it's cooked in the oven with olive oil, tomatoes, um, capers, and olives, and, um, and some herbs. It's just, when you eat it, it's just so flavorful. And you mentioned the fruit. What kind of fruit grows, grows there? I, I mean, Okay, let's talk about peaches. I mean, when you get a ripe, white, summer peach, you are just disarmed. It's like you have to stop anything you're doing and just eat that peach. And so what they do here is they give you a wine with peaches inside. And I mean, it's at lunch, you know, you're a bit hot and you just have a sip of that and, and the world is right. And how can you tell, let's say someone comes to the hotel or uh, you're, you're speaking to a guest and how can you tell a, a veteran of Positano who has been there many times? What would someone who has been there, you know six, seven, eight times, what, what do they do once, they, once they've really kind of become a regular? What are, the, what are their activities like? You know, they're probably not going to Pompeii as much or doing these kinds of excursions. Like, what do they do? They definitely, definitely spend a lot of time on the sea. Um, they would, as I said, um, rent a boat and, um, and, and go along the coast to these incredible restaurants. That is for sure. Um, and a lot of them actually enjoy early in the morning um, exercising, the walking the steps, walking around the village, and um, and maybe going out for a coffee. Um, I remember my uncle was always saying, you know, he would have lunch in the hotel, and then he would say, yeah, there's one thing that really is terrible in the hotel is the coffee. And he would leave the <laughs> hotel, walk down to the village, the bar, and have a coffee there. So that's sort of <laughs> something very funny because, um, you know, coffees have to be made constantly by the machine. And sometimes in a hotel, the yeah. machine's not working as much. So, I mean, you just notice them by little quirks that they have. You know, they, they love um, at a certain moment being on the terrace and having a drink in the evening at one of the bars, especially you see them at, at, at Aldo's in the evening, maybe enjoying a glass of champagne and then at sunset, you know, which is such a magical hour. Um, you know, some days they might decide they want to be by the pool and they'll just have lunch by the pool, which is also very relaxing. They, they don't have this frantic need to do things. They mostly, you know, just have a different rhythm, a more um, relaxed rhythm, really. And tell me a little bit about the village itself, like what, uh, you know, that you've mentioned before, like what is the, the sort of the state of the village now? Like what is there? Is it is it rather large? It's kind of hard to tell sometimes. Uh, because so many of the photographs of the town are of the coast from far away. And there's sort of these like, you know, postcard shots. But in terms of like the village itself, like what is there to do there? Well, the village, the, the lovely thing is, the first thing is that we are right in the center of the village, which makes it sort of a, a wonderful staging ground. And then there's some wonderful restaurants all around. And so again, even in the village, there are lots of restaurants where you can go for dinner. There are um, beautiful walks within the village. And the village is full of these stairways that you're just sort of mysterious. You take a stairway, you don't even know where you're going, and you end up maybe in a little square with a church. So the village has grown, but not a lot, because, um, of course, you know, nature is not very um, forgiving here. You know, the, the, the mountain is, is very steep, and, and also the laws are, are very stringent. Um, so the village hasn't grown that much. Um, but of course, you know, um, there, there are some people visiting. 
um, during the daytime. So there are some day trippers. But if you know the, the right times, when to go down to the beach, for example, or when to go for walks, you don't meet that many. You meet fewer people. And you've, you, uh, you've mentioned the writer's camp and things like that that you've worked on, uh, but you've also had artists come to the hotel and sort of stay there as a sort of a residency to sort of produce, you know, site-specific installations. Um, what do you, where did that idea come from, first of all? And what sort of do you think inspires them to kind of do what they do as from what they've told you? Well, the, the, the program, um, this program that we have at the hotel started about 11 years ago, 10 years ago, um, with this British curator that still works with us, who's a wonderful, collaborates with us, who's a wonderful woman called Silke Ritson Thomas. And together with her, we got this idea of, um, first of all, let me tell you, I have to backtrack a bit because my father was never really interested in contemporary art. So my family was collectors of art, but never really in contemporary art. And so at a certain moment, I thought I had to do something that was different because I think that each ge generation has to innovate, but celebrating what has been done before. So I thought, why don't I try to incorporate in this hotel some contemporary art? Also because I'd heard from this friend of mine that Italians have this ability to blend contemporary with the antiques. It's very much of an Italian trait. So I thought, let me try and do this at the hotel. So together with Carla, we got on this sort of quest to find a curator, and we fell upon Silka, who's wonderful, and we had a great entendre with. Together with her, we developed this idea of inviting, selecting an artist, first of all, which is a, a lengthy process, you know, what we like, what do we, what do we not like, and then over time we realized what we liked. And so then we select an artist together with a gallery we invite them here for a few days. So the artist is able to walk around the hotel, get a feeling for the hotel, get a feeling for the village, and find inspiration. Then the artist goes back to his studio and creates this work that we then proceed to purchase through the gallery and install in the hotel where the artist decided it was going to go. So the artist basically decides the work and the position. So in a way, it's the artist that is changing also the look and feel of the hotel um, because an artist will choose an area and then he will choose what he wants to do within that area. And then, of course, some of the paintings have to be shuffled around because I'm not going to throw them out. I'm going to just maybe place them in another place or, or, or change one from one place to another, which is, and all that takes time. So over time, we have built a collection of works that are all inspired from someone having been here. So we started, for example, with Martin Creed. And Martin Creed probably felt the stress and, and, and the excitement, but also the, the fear I had of, of, of changing this tradition. And his first work says, don't worry, which I think is so apropos because he just interpreted everything and put it in this work. And what did he do? He chose a different color for every neon. So you see that these powerful colors of the Amalfi Coast were very much an inspiration. These blues, these reds, these yellows, you know, this is an area of dramatic lights and dramatic colors. And so you can see this, this conversation going through the various artists. It's all very much centered around joy, around happiness, around color, around, um, you know, embracing um, the person that is looking at the work rather than challenging them. And uh, when you talk to these artists after they're done, like what sort of feedback do you get from them? Like what, what do you think that they, is there any common thread to kind of, in terms of the feedback of what these artists have told you before they or after they produce the work? Well, the one thing is that they all really love it. It's, it's just this, they love, we especially love what has been done up to now. But I think they really feel that they have done something very unique because they're all site-specific works. And I do think that in the artist's mind, site-specific works hold a special place. Um, because not only is there the, the creation, 
but there's also the sort of the synergy with all that's around, which I think is, is so interesting. For example, Alex Israel did an incredible mural. He did these palms that sort of create a trompe l'oeil next to some real palms. So as you look at them from different angles, you don't know if you're looking at a real palm or at a trompe l'oeil, which is this installation done by Alex Israel. Since it became a hotspot, Positano has been a magnet for creative types of all kinds. Alex Israel, a multidisciplinary artist based in LA, is no exception. Alex creates neon-looking, nostalgia-charged artworks, films that channel the hazy glamour of his hometown, VR collaborations with apps like Snapchat, and even fragrance collaborations with brands such as Louis Vuitton. As someone whose heart is so connected with the California vibe of sun and sand, I thought he'd be the perfect person to explain the appeal of Positano and La Siranusa. So you grew up in, you know, in Westwood in L.A. Can you tell me a little bit about how that city and L.A. itself sort of like impacted your your work and your, your visual style in terms of like, how do you think it maybe impacted the future artist you'd become? Well, I, I guess from an early age, I was always interested in making art. Um, it's that thing that happens when you're a kid and you can draw something well enough and people say, oh, you should take art class. And, and so I started looking at things more closely as a result. And I think one of the things that I had to look at was the city from, you know, the passenger window of my mom or dad's car. And um, of course, the city has a very sort of specific aesthetic and and it's like a collage of so many different styles and vernaculars. And I think all of that sort of seeped into me from a young age that in addition to, you know, the, the natural landscape of Los Angeles, the sunsets, the beach. Um, it's funny because I look back at things I made as a kid and they're all seascapes and cityscapes and paintings of sunsets. <laughs> and, and, um, I have a couple of them up in my studio now and people who come by, uh, I like to sometimes show them, you know, what I made at 10 years old or 11 years old and um and it's sort of kind of crazy to see how similar um the art that i made as a child is to what i make now um in addition to all of that all the kind of formal visual things that i absorbed growing up here and looking and seeing there was also this huge influence of the entertainment industry in hollywood on me as a as a kid um and my parents weren't in that world and um, my father was a real estate developer. My mother was a school teacher. Um, and, and so it was always kind of this exotic um, thing to me. And I had friends at school whose parents were in that world. And we had neighbors who were in that world. And it was always this kind of magical thing. I loved movies and I loved television. And I grew up with popular culture, um, you know, constantly streaming through the house. And... Um, and I was always fascinated. So there's always been an attraction to that, even though I grew up in LA, like it was, it, it was always something kept it like a kind of a distance and, um, kept its allure for me in that way. So, and, you know, you share something with one of our other guests, uh, David Sally, although probably at a different time in his life, um, cause you're a totally different generation, but, uh, you know, you, you had some time. Uh, learning under John Baldessari, is that right? I did. Well, I wasn't his student, but I was his intern. I was 18, and I worked for him for a summer. Uh-huh. And then we became, you know, good friends, and we're friends ever, up until his death. And he was like more like a mentor than a teacher, um, mm. and was always there to kind of give supportive advice, and just a great person, an incredible artist. And how did that happen? How, when, as, as you know, to be 18 and working with John Baldessari must be incredible. I went to um, Yale and I worked in the art gallery as a freshman. I was a volunteer guide, student guide. And they invited me to one of the board member dinners and sat me next to this wonderful man named John Walsh, who used to run the Getty. This was in the spring of my freshman year. And he said, what are you going to do this summer? What's your plan for an internship? And I was like, I don't know. And he said, well, then maybe I can help you. And he did. He connected those dots. And how did you first find yourself visiting uh, La Sierra Nusa and, and Positano? You know, it was an invitation. It came through Gagosian in Rome, through Pepe, who runs the gallery there, who's friends of Antonio and Carla. Um, Antonio and Carla have this incredible curator named Silka, 
who has brought artists to their attention with the purpose of creating this collection um, that's site-specific to the hotel. And they invited me to come and see the hotel and meet them. And I had known Silka for a long time. She'd been familiar with my work, but we go way back to when we both worked for the same gallery in Los Angeles, a gallery called Blum and Poe. She was the director and I was an assistant. And tell me a little bit about the site-specific installation that you that you did there. How did that, uh, did he pick out the spot for you or and then kind of said, what can you do here? Or uh, how did that work? No, they asked me to, to, to kind of absorb the hotel, to spend time and to figure out an idea to present. And there are these beautiful, there were these, and they're still, they're still there, they were there, these beautiful banana palm plants that, are in the barrel vaulted stairwell that goes from the lobby down to the oyster bar, to the champagne bar. And the plants remind me of the Beverly Hills Hotel of Los Angeles, the kind of vegetation that grows everywhere in this city. And it, and they make me feel home and they give me a sense of well-being. And I thought, well, how cool would it be and how surreal to put, uh, to paint, a mural with photorealist versions of these types of plants that could interact with the real plants in the space to create this pairing of illusionism and reality and and to kind of speak to this idea of fantasy versus reality sort of makes sense to think about in a place that feels like a fairy tale. And then uh, any kind of like don't miss sort of experiences because it sounds like it's something where you have to kind of find your own way once you like or, or at least find something where you can really, you know, be in that moment. Like, was there a place for you to be in that moment? Was it like swimming or was it uh, going down to the village or? Gosh, I would start in the morning with the hike. I think they call it the path of the gods. It goes up to the top of the hill. I would then take a swim in the Siranusa's pool and have breakfast because they have the best breakfast ever. I would probably walk down through the town to the beach and take a boat to Los Scolio for lunch. I would try and stop by Lee Golly on the way back to say hi to, to my friends um, Nicoletta and Giovanni. And then I would have cocktails at the champagne bar and watch the sunset and have dinner with Carla and Antonio there. Alex was right. La Siranusa does have the most incredible breakfast. I was not only impressed by the food, but by the insanely high level of service that goes even into a simple buffet. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask Antonio how he intends to keep the legacy of the hotel going for another 70 years, and what this beautiful nexus of sun, beauty, culture, and pleasure mean to him. And uh, you know the old, uh, the old expression of... Uh, uh, the old Italian expression of like the first generation creates the business, the second one grows it, and then the third one, you know, ruins it or does something terrible. What uh, what sort of advice have you have to give your sons uh, about you know what makes La Serenusa like what it is? What is uh, what sort of lessons have you imparted on them? You know, it's 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 something that I think it's the things that you don't say, which are the ones that are absorbed which are the most important. I think for them just to look around and and feel the atmosphere and realizing that it's something that you can't change. You know, there's certain things like the warmth of the staff, the feeling of coziness, you know, this atmosphere of tranquility. There's certain things which are just not in discussion. And I think each generation wants to change, but I think they're beginning to understand that the first thing you have to do is you have to celebrate the work that's been done before and then find your own ways to tweak. And I'm sure that they will. You know, they might not be as focused in certain areas as I am, but they will have other focuses that might be just as wonderful. And let's say you had to create, I'm curious, let's say you had to create a time capsule, right? Imagine that, that, uh, Aldo or Francesco's great, 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 great grandson or granddaughter uh, is listening to this podcast right now. And they found, they found the file somehow. And they want that you want to give them a message about La Serenusa and, and Positano. What would that message be? Love. 
I think it's very much about love. I think what everyone feels here is the love that we give to the guests. And I think that, you know, that's something that must never be lost. I think that people forget views, but they never forget when someone looked after them with warmth and love. And that's something which is really moves me to tears every time when you come to this area, is the warmth of these people that inhabit it, how they welcome you to their houses. And that's really what I think is one of these pillars of this hotel, which I hope will never be lost. Thank you to Antonio, Carla, Fallon, and the entire team at La Serenusa for making this pleasurable episode happen. And stick around to the very end to hear a bit of musical magic straight from the hotel. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Ciao, ciao.